1: of 2019 of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker, Siebert and I, Niels Koster-Larsen, where we, in addition to our usual topics, uh, will discuss some of the highlights of the last 12 months and how we view the current state of trend following, perhaps. But before we get into all of this, uh, let me start by saying good morning to you, Jerry, and good afternoon
2: to Moritz. How are you doing? Hello, gents. How are you? We're doing well. Glad to... Um Be on the last podcast of the year and look forward to the 2020.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be exciting, no doubt. And of course, this was a bit of a quiet week from a market perspective during this uh, holiday season. uh, I think it's kind of the only time of the year where there's one day where none of the markets are are open. So it's not much of a market review that I have uh, to offer this week. Of course, uh, last week we did talk about uh, this article from uh, Cliff Asness about how kind of illiquid investments where you don't have to mark to market so they also have artificially low volatility and, and I think we all think about private equity as a good example of that. How these types of investments um, perhaps are easier for investors to to stick with compared to what we do in, in the trend-following Uh, world, Um, but then at the same time this week, I did notice there was a report out uh, from Morningstar who came with the conclusion that higher volatility brings higher returns. And of course, for us in the trend-following world, that is no surprise, but what fascinates me still, though, is that many of the investors who really need the higher returns to meet their liability uh, requirements... Um, like underfunded pension funds, etc., they don't really have a meaningful allocation to high-vol strategies like trend-following. So, of course, I'm sure that the next crisis will change that, but as history has taught us many times, that's usually a little bit too late um, to uh, come to that realization. But I don't know about you, uh, March. We'll talk about the year as a whole uh, maybe a little bit later, but I don't know if there was anything this week, not from a performance point of view before you jump into that, but maybe if there were any any of the markets that you follow closely that kind of um, stood out. As I said, on my side, it was kind of the most extreme, was up 4% for the markets we trade, and the most extreme to the downside was down 4%, so nothing... Nothing really too exciting, but you do trade a few different markets than we do, so I was just curious.
3: Not not much stood out. Uh, The one market that I remember I had a bit of a look at is is gold. Um, Gold was kind of like sitting in the 1450, 1480 or something like that range. I mean, I'm I'm not a technical chart analyst, but I remember it being stuck there for a while. And... uh, and, and then all of a sudden, boom, it made a move higher. And we're now, again, north of the 1500 mark. Um, so those precious metals are looking strong. And, you know, probably completely unrelated, but it, it happened to coincide with a, um, uh, a legislative change here in Germany. So, you know, Germans, apparently, they love their gold and they like to hoard physical bullion in their saves or wherever they keep it. Um, and... Uh, and you know they could in Germany, you could buy gold, physical gold, I think, without showing an ID um, tax free up to the up to an amount of ten thousand euros. Uh, and in years prior that amount has been even higher or maybe even unlimited. Um, and over Christmas, people were you know lining up in front of the stores and they were buying, their bullion uh, to get away for presents or keep for themselves. And, and now this has been lowered to 2,000 euros, which isn't really a lot. I mean, you you know, 100 grams of physical gold is about 4,000 euros. So uh, it's really, we're, we're down to, if you want to buy physical gold, you can buy some coins without showing an ID. But if you really want to invest and have a larger allocation to physical gold, then you now become id and your address and identity is then known to the authorities and this is effective 31st of uh december this year and so we have pictures of all those physical gold stores and there's like you know lines of you know hundreds of people queuing so that they can buy their gold um so it's moving higher
1: there you go uh i'm i'm long i like it I mean, it's quite interesting, not from a market point of view, but but of course, this this trend that you mentioned, Moritz, is something we've seen in Europe. The fact that you're, you're, not, you're not allowed to carry much cash anymore, um, that's illegal now. Apparently, you can't buy much gold anymore. I mean, and this has nothing to do with trend following, it has nothing to do with what we normally talk about. This is just a personal observation. I mean, we're certainly heading into a time where it would seem like authorities are very keen on controlling... Everything to do with um, cash and money Everything flows. Everything you do, and, yeah.
3: they they want to know what you own and uh, where you purchased it, and when and how much, um, and and tax you on it, mm. or they want to know that you have it. Uh, comes the time when they need to confiscate it again. Um, who knows? You know, we've not 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 we have seen it. Not you, I and Jerry, but uh, uh, my grandparents have seen periods like that, and uh, you know, I only know it from from being told that, you know, it can happen. Um, in the U.S., gold has been illegal. If you had, you know, the possession of physical gold, then you could go to jail or you would be sent to jail, you know, many, many decades ago. So stuff like that happens. Anyway, um, I don't have a crystal ball. I know central banks are buying gold. Well, you know, that's mm-hmm. what I read. Yeah. Um, and I also, you know, found it interesting stumbling across uh, some articles reporting on inflation. And we hear... Uh, people to saying that you know inflation is so difficult to get up, and uh, the um, you know Jerome Powell has difficulties uh, getting inflation to target, and Christine Lagarde has the same difficulties here in Europe. But when you look at different types of baskets which people actually use, um, then inflation could be at high as high as eight percent per year right now. It's just you know this this outdated basket that's being used with. A lot of oranges in there i don't know how many oranges you guys eat i eat maybe one a week or one every second week um but apparently oranges have a very high weight in, <laughs> in the basket anyway
1: um interesting times sure sure and and i think we touched upon this last week um, or maybe I'm, I'm thinking of a different conversation but but that's one thing i learned also recently is that the ecb's way of measuring inflation is very different from the fed in, in Europe, we don't include any real weight to housing cost, while in the US there's 40% weight to uh, something called they call defined shelter, which is the cost of a living. Um, so, of course, it's easier to some extent to get to the 2% for, for, for the Fed than it is for the ECB. So it's, again, as you rightly say, it's the basket of, of goods that goes into and services that goes into this. And maybe none of them really reflect the true, um, you know, inflation in society. Anyways, that's obviously.
2: But as uh, you know, as good uh, trend followers, price followers, people who uh, would advocate to others that, um, well... The fundamentals of what's going on in this world the fundamentals that people kind of know about or and the secret fundamentals that no one can really know about that's all built into the price so the markets uh don't need uh and don't don't uh, we, we wouldn't expect them to pay attention to oranges or a miscalculated uh government produced inflation index yeah i agree with that
3: but, you know, sometimes these it seems to be uh, these days that a lot of people have on their mind that there could be a major shift in the regime, given that, you know, we've printed so much money, there's so much debt in the world, um, inflation numbers aren't, aren't really moving, um, geopolitical tension, you name it. I mean, the list is long and everybody has a different list, but, you know, there's there's kind of like an undercurrent, it seems, and people are worried about some sort of an an end game there you know Ray Dalio is talking uh, is telling us that you know that you know um, uh, there, there's there's risk of tension between between the people and you know the uh, inequalities between you know wealthy and poor and all of that like I don't know whether that's happening or not but if you like you know you you, you, you go through all of that I'm not surprised that people are buying gold physical gold they don't want to even buy the gold stocks uh, because you know that is a more risky position in your portfolio that could be taken away more easily than the physical gold.
2: Yeah, and all this is feeding into paranoia or dislike of government around, uh, you know, manifested in uh, the U.S. president and Boris Johnson and Bitcoin. And so the governments are kind of not allaying these fears by uh, doing all this stuff. And it kind of reminds me of uh, back probably when gold was at its peak, uh pretty sure i bought some gold back then and put it away you know uh near its peak and uh, i read where there were um vending machines i think in the middle east or somewhere that was or india that was you could go up to a vending machine and buy um you know gold (laughs) yeah and as
1: you say that jerry i think it is interesting because you rightly point out that there is a lot of discontent um towards government and politicians etc etc not just in the west but we see that in the east as well in hong kong etc etc and although we could say well that doesn't necessarily you know affect what we do on a day-to-day basis but i think longer term this may well manifest itself in the markets when you know at whatever point point this manifests in change of either uh, leadership or just something that could be uh, a lot worse, where we go from civil unrest to uncivil unrest, so to speak. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it is relevant, even though we don't talk about this because this is a, uh, you know, a podcast dedicated to kind of rules-based investing, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, all of these things that are happening at the moment um, uh, will end up showing up in the price at some point, and therefore, it will become relevant uh, for us uh, for sure. Moritz, that was a long introduction to kind of your um, experience this week as a trend follower. Um, Whether it was a good experience or bad experience, um, we're always eager to find out. Yeah, we we took a little bit of a segue there early on. Um,
3: But I had a good week. So uh, like my trend following system, as I always do, um, those equity markets, they continue to amaze me. Almost no volatility, just higher and higher and higher and higher. Uh, all of us have long positions in equities, I'm pretty sure. And so this has worked really well. Um, bonds kind of like sit there. Uh, gold, I've already mentioned, made a move higher. I'm long, so that worked out well. The NASDAQ, it's up 40% for this year. Just uh, keeps on going and going. So cutting a long story short, December turns out to be a good month for me. And... Um, I'm now pretty sure that the year will be a positive one unless something really bad happens next Monday. Um, but let's hope that's not the case, and uh, and then we're off to the races again in 2020. But you know, looking back, I, I have no reason to be disappointed with the performance of my trend following system. We've had a uh, um, a good first half year. There has been a little bit of a setback I remember in the late summer with you know the bond markets correcting quite violently I mean they had this very very strong move up uh, in the early summer um, which we benefited from and then this massive move down uh, in the late summer which uh, cost some money but um, other than that it's a year to be thankful for.
1: Yeah, and as I said, we might go back and review the year a little bit later in our conversation today, but just picking up on what you just said, uh, Moritz, if anyone wants to listen to what we would define as a very raw and honest account of being a trend follower, they should listen to the episode just after that big Bond sell-off. I think they could hear in in our voices that it had been a very rough week, and uh, I think you were... uh, in particular very uh, honest about your week uh yeah.
3: <laughs> and, and i'm also i'm pretty sure i mean i i need to listen to it again but i probably said um that you know it feels pretty horrible right here right now in the moment um as you live there that i probably also said that you know probably in three months down the road it's uh, it's one for the memory books and um yeah. you know we look back on the thing and we just very objectively say well you know what bonds went up and then they went down so what the heck <laughs> you know we've reduced our positions absolutely and, uh, and and moved on so it's it's one of those episodes where you go like, yeah, it's been an interesting time, but um there have been so many interesting times and you just must not take them too personally
1: no, and that's exactly what you said so uh, so it it is an incredibly it's been an educational uh journey uh this year i think for for all of us and and hopefully for for you the listener as well anyways uh back to the weekly review i mean i uh, again i can only echo i mean it was a short week in terms of uh markets so of course the festive season has uh, you know a little trading, especially in Europe, going on. Um, but we, you know, we did continue the the trending behavior we've seen, uh, which actually is resulting in a very strong finish of of the trend barometer that I publish every day. It's currently at seventy, which is very high, and so it suggests a solid uh, month of December. And and indeed, uh, on, on our side, like you, Moritz, we had a, a good week. Um, we're having a decent month and a great year, above our average year, I would say. So, uh, yeah, nothing to complain about either. In December, um, the markets that have stood out, have, of course, been equities, uh, clearly, but been supported by a few other markets, such as natural gas, uh, soybean oil, and the Mexican peso are really the standouts on our side to the upside and then you know smaller losses in 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 in, in other markets but nothing nothing too uh, dramatic but it's also been a, a month I guess Jerry or uh, that you know there has been some activity in in the single stocks and of course with equities being such you know in focus it's always interesting to hear how how your models have uh, reacted to that
2: yeah the equities done well the indices. Keep going higher, and some of the stocks that uh, I manage that I have in my portfolio, they of course are going higher as well. Some are sitting there, and that's uh, sort of the downside of trading uh, hopefully a diverse group of mar- uh, stock mark- stocks is that uh, some are sitting there and some are go- uh, short or getting knocked out of the longs, but usually only to see them go right back to the highs. So um, it's kind of a interesting way of looking at the stock market and try to ignore the market itself and just look at your individual markets that, uh, you know, if I feel like if I've done them correctly, if I put the portfolio together, it's, they're not all going to look like the S&P, unfortunately, when the s and is doing pretty darn well. But I agree with, um, you know, some of the the bean oil looks good and we're starting to see more of the upside breakouts to some commodities, which uh, would be welcome change to the shorts that have uh, kind of a limited downside most of the time. But uh, bean oil and wheat, uh, Chicago wheat made a breakout, nice move up, and bean oil kept going, um, breaking out of the, you know, maybe the typical correlation pattern of the grains in general. Um, Short a couple of wheats and long... Chicago wheat, so um, some benefit there. And the resumption of the gold and silver looks pretty nice. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, not new highs, but um, the year-end kind of rally is uh, nice. Uh, Platinum keeps going higher, a little bit of volatility there. But uh, like you said, uh, the the Mexican peso, uh, Brazil, I'm sorry, the South Africa currency made a new, Break out Israel uh the shekel keeps going higher Russia ruble higher some of these uh the dollar uh f- fell a little bit on Friday so we uh but we had some uh, long positions that uh keep going higher as well so it's kind of nice to see that diversification there
1: yeah so of course, as mentioned, the markets certainly took a bit of a breather during part of the week. Did people also take a breather from Twitter, Jerry, or uh, did that uh, machine just continue to uh, deliver interesting content over the Christmas holiday?
2: Yeah, I mean, a little bit, uh, not a lot going on there either. It's been pretty a pretty quiet week, not sure why. I, with the Christmas falling on a Wednesday, I think people are done by Friday afternoon for a while. But uh, there were some interesting things out there. Evidently, I thought there was a new book out, but there wasn't a new book. It's a few years old, but I saw some interesting things. Uh, I liked uh, quotes from uh, the book itself, a hedge fund market wizards. And I uh, posted some of these things. Um, One of the things that I liked from this book was uh, volatility and risk are not synonymous. Low volatility does not imply low risk and high volatility does not imply high risk. Selling out-of-the-money options can exhibit low vol, but is at risk of asymmetrically increasing losses in the event of a steep sell-off. And then it goes on to say, um, traders will exhibit high volatility because of occasional very large gains, not a factor that most investors would associate with risk or even consider undesirable, but will have strictly curtailed risk because of the asymmetric structure of their trades. Now, that is beautiful wonderful could not be said better and it's what i rail about a lot this fall targeting that uh, assumes that oh my gosh this new volatility and this big profitable trade is is to be feared it's evil uh we need to get rid of that but as uh, traditional old school trend followers um, i'm totally in favor of letting those profits run especially if they get scary and crazy and are subject to uh Lots of volatility and drawdown from the peak profit, uh, so what, keep going, follow your system, follow your exits that have been derived from these past amazing great trends that are into your rules that say be liberal and be uh, free with your profits, unlike your losses. So I thought this was just a uh, a great way to throw back into everyone's face one of my true beliefs, which is uh, let those profits run and be very liberal with those profits and follow your long-term uh, exit stops. And uh, don't be so worried about volatility as long as it's uh, with a profitable trade. Yes, indeed. Clearly, when you go back
1: through uh, the, the classics, you know, classical books like The Market Wizards, I mean, you can always pick out some golden nuggets that are really timeless and um i mean on that note i'm sure people may or people may have already downloaded from my uh, website from the top traders website this guide that i have done uh, in the past of some of the best trading investment books i would call them uh, but uh, just if you haven't uh, you sh- you should and if you already done it you might want to do it again because i just updated the version so now it has more than 100 book titles that I think are um, interesting uh, and useful and valuable and as Jerry just quoted from from one of the books that are featured in that guide um we can always learn from reading and rereading uh, some of these titles for sure.
2: Well this uh, another quote uh, from the book that I liked that I think hits at the heart of what we do and what we believe in is uh, losing trades can be good trades there's no way of knowing a priori which individual trade will make money as long as the trade adhere to a process with a positive edge it is a good trade even if it loses similar trades repeated multiple times will come out ahead I mean that sums it all up I mean we do the back test we follow the process we are not predicting what the market's going to do we're just following these trends and 60% of the trades are losers or thereabouts and uh, we End up looking at our back test and saying, "Hey, I have a positive edge. I'm going to do all these trades, and my whole premise is that uh, if I just continue to do these trades multiple times, many times, hundreds and thousands of times, I will come out ahead. So uh, this is what it's all about. And I thought put it together very succinctly. And uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of repeating myself. I guess this is uh, what we all believe in.
3: And there's and, and and I like that because you know with those. Good trade, bad trades or good bats and bad bats. I mean, really they are bats. And there's really you know good bats, bad bats, winning bats, and losing bats. There's four types, right? And uh, a bad bat can be a winning bet. so the outcome is positive, but uh, the process that you applied in order to get into the trade has been bad. and the other the other way around can be true too you can make good bets a uh, good bet is a bet that has a positive edge but the outcome can be negative negative. and what you just said about volatility jerry is right there as well you know with with our edge we can have so many uh losing trades and even subsequent losing trades that you know of course will go into a drawdown and 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 the process itself will only play out with volatility, we can only discover our edge if, like Jerry said, you know, we're reapplying the process many, many hundreds or even thousands of times, and then over time the edge will show up. But it's such a tiny rough edge, so crude, that it will be clouded by vol, by a lot of volatility over time. And you have to be able to withstand that and embrace that volatility in order to get to the finish line. I mean, it, it, I was just thinking about this. Um, it, it appears to me that there is kind of like a movement in the markets where every year that passes since the global financial crisis, investors want less and less volatility. I mean, hasn't it been the case that like, you know, 15, say 15 or 20 years ago, um, investors were kind of like okay with 15% vol in their portfolio? even some institutional investors, um, maybe I'm dreaming, but I remember that back in those days, 15% vol was kind of like, okay, I mean, let's do 15 vol. You know, this means markets may go up, you know, one and a half or 2% on a daily basis. Let's get on with our lives. And this is no longer true. Uh, and, it, it, you know, for a time, it seemed that people wanted 10 vol. But 10 vol now seems to me is high. People want five. They want six or seven. And and they do that through risk control, vol control, you know. I, I, I don't know what it is. But to me, it seems that this is probably not the right way of going about the markets is to put on risk and then immediately try stripping away the volatility for like a feel-good investment that volatility goes somewhere, that risk shows up, um, you leverage it higher, you go to different parts of the risk curve, whatever it is. There's also the risk that you're not achieving your investment goals. You know, If you're sitting into, in something that produces 5% vol, how much money do you expect to be making from that investment and will that really satisfy your targets? I'm not sure. So I'm certainly not in that camp. I'm comfortable with higher levels of volatility. And I think it's, um, for me, definitely is the right thing to do. It's north of 15%. Um, and I don't have a problem with that. I just need to embrace it. But like like I said, it seems to me there is this movement underway where every year that passes,
2: people want lower and lower vol. Well, not only that, um, whatever vol, they don't want to see it. So we talked yeah. last week, and yeah. we can talk again this week about more tweets is concerning that, uh, you know, the hottest thing out there, the biggest bubble out there is uh, private equity, which hides the performance or mischaracterizes performance. Uh, the honesty of the accounting is is called into question by some. And then, of course, regardless, uh, it's a psychological advantage to f- sophisticated people who can't understand trend following or don't like it because it's too simple that uh, they don't want to see performance. So maybe, you know, we could become more uh, desired investment, if we could figure out a way to uh, not show performance, not mark to market.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, with, with private equity, we've mentioned it last week, there's the, say, the comparative levered small cap stocks portfolio, which maybe that portfolio has a vol of 20 Maybe not these days. Maybe these days, uh, leverage small caps are 15 fall. I don't know. But uh, say longer term averages are probably 20 to 25 fall on the leverage small cap stock portfolio. But private equity investors, they don't see it. They have none of that they have maybe a quarterly print of the NAF or maybe an annual print of the NAF, right? And if they do the historical vol calculation based on those infrequent net asset value prints, maybe their volatility is 8% or something like that. So it's misrepresentative of the underlying um, investment that's actually going on. But, you know, there is a risk that even with the infrequent NAF, at some point, the investment will in the investor's portfolio realize its natural higher volatility. And this is when all of a sudden uh, the lights go off, private equity stops working because the macroeconomics change or whatever it is, right? And the investment is down 80%. So the next NAF print you get is at 20. The last one was at 100. The next one is at 20. And boom, there you have your volatility in one sweep go um, without a chance uh, of getting out. No liquidity, no nothing. You just have to take the twenty. That's that's what you get. You just take it on the chin. There's your vol. There's your risk.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm completely fascinated by this uh, topic as well because I think it incorporates so many facets of uh, investor behavior and biases and and you know the whole behavioral kind of economics uh, you see uh, expressed so well through the um never-ending uh desire to invest in these things that as as jerry uh you know very well said you know mischaracterizes the true risk um so i think we as investors we want to be deceived by what looks safe um but we still want the high returns of course um that doesn't change Uh, and for some investors of course we know that they need the high returns because they're completely you know, underfunded uh, in, in in some ways. And I think that's the. So now that we see more and more money pouring into these investments, and, and you may be right, uh, Marge, one day we wake up and, and we get the 20 print instead of the, the 100, um, and something blows up. But I worry much more about what that will do to the part of the investment world, meaning, you know, i.e., the pension fund community, where individuals rely. On that pension to be there and ideally to have grown i mean in i can only speak for switzerland of course but in switzerland your pension unless you put it in equities uh, which you can do to some extent but but not for all of your pension otherwise it doesn't grow because there is no returns whatsoever to to be had um, and i worry about when when the people who have not had any growth in their pension. And maybe worst case we'll see some pension uh, blow up that might affect him seriously. What will that do to society? You know, how is that gonna change the some some of the core dynamics in society if you see people start losing what they thought was a safe sum of money? And we've already seen, you know, that with this whole negative interest rate environment we've had where the people who were told in the seventies and the eighties and the nineties and all of that to save money and put it in bonds and all of those things. Of course, they've had a nice return. Uh, don't get me wrong, but but now that they have to live from that uh, sum of money, there has been no return uh, if they've stayed in bonds as they were uh, advised to do back in the day. Um, so that has also have a ne- had a negative effect on on that part of uh, uh, of the population. I don't think it's a small part of the population either. I think if I think deep down. The people who own stocks are probably, you know, uh, a very small percentage of of the population at the end of the day.
2: And it's not a mystery. I mean, these stocks are going to go de- – these private equity investments are going to go down when the stock market goes down. I mean, they're highly correlated, maybe more correlated, maybe fi- – I mean, what did small stocks do in 2008? More than the 50% drawdown, probably. Yeah, so it's yeah. no mystery – You know, they're just temporarily off the books, less fall. It's silly because it's so elementary and juvenile and immature. And that's what's amazing by it. We're talking to the same people. You guys are very simplistic. No, that, no. I cannot do that with my degrees and my experience and the boardroom I have to listen to or port it all into private equity. Seriously, the same people. Yeah, same people. Mm. Because I'm too emotional. I can't handle the fall. The <laughs> and so you walk in and you say, hey, a CTA walks in and says, hey, I can give you no cost to you. It's, uh, there's no opportunity cost. This risk I'm going to reduce is not going anywhere else, but it is. So I'm going to fall target for you. You want 10% fall? Great. Just call me when you want five. I'll give you that as well. So totally accommodating. Uh, you want your... Real returns hidden? Ah, you can have that. I'll give that to you as well. So, the managers are complicit in all of this. The CTAs and the private equity, it's all coming home to roost one of these days Uh, in kind of an unfortunate and kind of stupid way that just a normal uh, equity drawdown, you know, that's coming as well, but there's no kind of bad motives behind people who invest in Indexes and you know they've been told to do that. It has worked, and it probably might continue to work. Uh, if you don't, know if you don't know any better, and you don't realize you should have some diversified trend-following investments as well.
1: I was just going to add to that, and and you know we're obviously preaching to the choir. I'm sure a big percentage of uh, of you guys listening to our conversation each week, um, you know, like trend and probably have some trend. But that's also going to be, I believe, a a decent proportion of you who don't have any. Uh, trend following in your portfolio right now um, and who may have large exposure to equities. But just following up on what you said, Jerry, two things. One, on top of what you said, the, the other thing that will be extraordinary is that when the day comes and they find their portfolios deep, deep, deep underwater because of the investments, the decisions they've made, ignoring all of the traditional advice um uh, and and portfolio theory and all of that stuff which we which has been out there for decades the interesting thing is they will be surprised i mean they will sound surprised and they will it will make headlines as as if they didn't know that they should have done it any you know any otherwise i think that's one thing but the other thing and i said that last week and i really don't mean to come across um uh in 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 a bad way but but I just don't have much sympathy, sympathy for people who, you know, find themselves in that situation when they know that if you put all your money in one equity, in asset class or in illiquid stuff, that it could have very seriously negative consequences. So, some people will definitely, um, uh, you know, be upset and, and so on and so forth, but but you have to look at your own actions. And there's been plenty of warning time this time around. There's been plenty of warning, or at least time. I wouldn't say warning, but there's been plenty of time to create a well-diversified portfolio. It's not that,
3: you know, the information is hidden. I mean, the internet, there's blogs. I mean, everybody, if if you're interested in finding out about the risks, then uh, there's ways to do that. There's many books on the topic, I mean, i I don't think there is an excuse for an institution, the money manager to say kind of like when it then happens well, I didn't know or I didn't know better you everybody had plenty of chance to inform him or herself right I sometimes wonder what role do the consultants play in in all of that um i I don't work with consultants so so i don't i write a, you know can't comment specifically, but I mean those people you know ought to be professionals in the financial markets. So are they promoting private equity and venture capital and leverage small cap stocks and all of that type of stuff to their, to their clients and their advisory function for a fee? Are they making money of that? I don't know. But you know, I'd, I'd expect those consultants to also uh, mention those warnings and say, well, don't become too illiquid. Don't get carried away on all this low volatility investing type of stuff. You may regret it. Like Jerry say, at one point it'll come to roost and the question is, what do you do then?
1: Are you requesting a bailout? Are you saying it, it wasn't me? <laughs> the other thing, of course, which is quite interesting, speaking you know, to your point, uh, Moritz, about there's no excuse for, for not knowing. I mean, since the last financial crisis, one other thing is, is quite important, actually, and that is the invention of the iPhone, right? I mean, everyone has much more information available you know just by using their their phone right so so uh, and, and a lot of these great people we find on Twitter who really produces amazingly um, you know sound and, and and interesting content that that Jerry uh, picks up uh, every week. Um, I mean that's available for free as well. I think the last crisis because it was a housing bubble it was maybe more difficult to spot for uh, the the ordinary investor. Uh, or the, you know, then I I kind of understand that even though there were some warning signs but it was tied to, you know, Lehman Brothers and specific events but this time with the the access to information we've had since uh, 2009 um, it's all there Um, so this time around I really don't believe there is any excuse for not having a properly, fully diversified portfolio that can withstand much better um, the next crisis when it comes, because it will, it will come. Even though, and the other thing we 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 maybe forget in this d- debate is that also it's this um, passive versus active, right? We 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 nowadays, and and that maybe goes to your point uh, more. It's about you know the role of the advisor, the role of the consultant. Everyone is being uh, advised to put money into passively uh, managed funds. But what happens when you do that is you suddenly have a massive amount of money that are not concerned about price, right? Because these funds won't buy things or sell things based on what price it's trading at. They will simply buy and sell based on the flow they see in their fund. So price discoveries, I think, has changed from where it used to be. It's not driven by what is the, 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 the actual value of what I'm buying, And maybe that's why people like Warren Buffett has more cash in his books than than ever before, because maybe there is little value uh, out there at the moment. Who
2: knows? And, you know, you have uh, hundreds and thousands of people that we don't even know about, but a few we do. You know, Sam, George, Woody, and they're good young men, and they are concerned about their clients, and they read, and they... make themselves uh, make this information available to themselves and they're like whoa if you're concerned about capital preservation and making money you know maybe they don't know everything that they they'll end up knowing about trends and following prices and diversification but they're well onto the game and they see the downside of not approaching things by price only and taking small losses and having on shorts and commodities and diversification and so it's not like it's not available to uh, everyone. It's just you have to not have the proper incentives of taking care of clients and taking care of your own money and, and um, <clears throat> you know, just being pressured into um, staying with investments that are continuing to work and staying away from those that don't work. And so there is other factors that keep people away from doing the right thing, but they're not good factors. They're not things to be proud of. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, on
1: top of that, without naming any names, um, because we don't know if, if their bosses are listening into the to our conversation, but as you say, there are people who are who are certainly uh, trying to uh, make a difference and change the attitudes towards trend for their clients, but are being shot down by by their bosses, frankly, because this is thinking a little bit outside the box, and this is not how we normally do things. And so I have a lot of respect and time for for these guys who are really trying to uh, to make a positive impact and a difference for, for their clients, despite the fact that they're meeting a lot of resistance uh, within, which may not be good for their personal careers in the short term. But I think you're right, Jerry, I think in in the long run. Um, and we know this is going to happen, right? I mean, when the crisis comes and when it all falls out, and, and I'm hoping... But I'm also expecting that we'll see some of these strategies that we work with yet again do well um, during a longer-term crisis. And we know what's going to happen. And then we're going to see massive inflows uh, into the industry again, um, like we saw in 2009, like we saw in 2003. Um, But it's probably too late, at least in the short term. It's never too late, of course. But in the short term, it's too late. They didn't get the benefit they really needed but 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 that's another trait of of human behavior i guess so yeah what else uh, jerry um, did you see on your side i know we have a comment actually or maybe some questions coming from from woody this week i have another question from william but i want to let you run with it for now jerry
2: well just to finish up on this uh My last quote from this uh, book was, uh, equating manager performance in a given year with manager skill can be a mistake. Sometimes more skilled managers will underperform. The best performers are often the most imprudent rather than the most skilled. Past performance can sometimes even be an inverse indicator. So it's back to the following this process. Did you follow the process? Uh, Which has got to be our bottom line. And, uh, you know, even though we... the Risk taking has gotten lower and lower to preserve management fees and preserve AUM. Risk taking can be out of control and crazy. I've done it myself, so uh, there is a there is a line that you don't want to cross. That you know your customer, you know your investors, and you don't. It will be difficult to uh, stay in business and pres- You know, if you're frequently having uh, losing periods of 40 or 50 or 60 percent. So there, uh, but following that particular process, and uh, that's. Fact to what we know works. And uh, the process can look, you know, for a skilled person, it, it can. It's they're not always going to finish in first place by following the rules and trading with a moderate leverage.
1: Yeah, very true, very true. Performance chasing uh, will probably never go out of fashion, though. So, uh, but you're right. Do you want to take the lead on the, we had a long email from Woody. I only saw it as we started uh, recording uh, today. So um, if you have a better grasp on, on some of the points that he's making, then maybe that's a a good way to start. And we can uh, talk about William's uh, question afterwards.
2: Sure. I mean, I think uh, Woody brings up a good point. He's very uh, intelligent, smart, and um, understands trend and diversification. And, uh, but this is a question and a comment that we hear a lot. And, uh, He gets really into it with uh, some good examples as to uh, why do trend followers and CTAs continue to say that they don't make predictions when, of course, everyone is making predictions. If you put a trade on, you are kind of predicting. He goes on to give his reasons, and I guess my uh, idea is I'm going to stick with that we're not really predicting. We're not good at predicting, for one thing. So, like I said, uh, most of us are in the 40% range as it relates to winning trades. So that seemingly might be enough uh, for people to say, oh, okay, I got it. You don't, you're don't. you not good at predicting, so I guess you're not really predicting. And your predictions, if you were kind of banking on those, uh, you would need to be in the 50-point-something percent range, I suppose. And so, uh, but I guess... Uh, could still be construed that maybe we are we're taking these positions, we are sort of predicting something, and I think what we're kind of predicting is and I think he gets into it a little bit, is that uh, what we believe, the trend following and the back testing and the edge that we have of taking that small loss, taking small losses and letting profits run, will continue to work. Okay, guilty. I definitely think that that's the case. Uh, we're definitely thinking that the systematic approach that we Utilize is, uh, I guess we're kind of predicting it's going to work. We're assuming it's going to work. We're hoping that's going to work and uh, that all of the trades in the past that have, um, you know, shown us that uh, when we add them all up, they've shown us that we do make money, that we, we're hoping that's going to continue in the future. I've just sort of, maybe this is not a great analogy, but uh, I think it has you know, I love, love, love. So, we're going to talk to uh, Andreas Cleneau. Uh, soon, and I can't wait to uh, tell him how much I love uh, characterizing trend-following and trend-following trades as bets. Oh, gosh, I'm never going to back off that. So uh, we're going to have a really nice discussion about betting. And I think uh, in the same way that we put these bets on, it's similar to a blackjack table where we're sitting there and we have our process, we have our system, we have our rules, but we're not predicting which cards are going to come next. Uh, that's irrelevant and, and silly. And so I have no idea which trades are going to work and most of them are not going to work. And what works is holding on to them for a long period of time and uh, participating in these outlier moves. And what works in blackjack is the process and following those rules. But without regard to predicting which hand I'm going to win or which cards are going to be next. So uh, it's, a, it's an okay way It's an acceptable way, if you want to call it predicting, Uh, but uh, it's a far cry from predicting macro events in the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd love to hear Moritz's view, but I mean, I look at it slightly uh, differently, uh, Woody. Um, I'm not sure I would use the word predicting. I think, first of all, I think you could could say, perhaps, that uh, when we enter a trade, we're guessing. When we exit a trade, we know meaning we don't really have a clue other than there's a breakout, so we guess and we go long or short. But when we get stopped out, we kind of know that that wasn't a trend, um, you know, at least for now. So that's one thing I would say about um, or the way I think about this. The other thing is that the reason I don't think we are predicting, I think we do something different. I think we rely not necessarily on... Um, that trend following works, but I think we rely. And I have to be really careful now because, as an average student um, in school, I probably didn't pay enough attention to physics. Um, but I think Newton once said in one of his laws that things that are in motion are more likely to continue to be in motion uh, or or in that direction until something, you know, externally forces it to change course. So maybe we can't transfer that directly to the markets, but I think there's something to it. I think if you look at the probability of things going up, if it, they're already in an uptrend, is probably higher mathematically or statistically than not. So I think that's what we're relying on, that some of these rules continue to work, uh, or some of these laws or physics laws or whatever you would uh, define it. So I agree with Jerry. I don't think we predict anything, um, but we certainly rely on on uh on certain things continuing to to uh work w- without a doubt but every time we enter a trade i think it's just an educated guess but i think when we get out it's because you know our homework shows us that this really wasn't a trend so i think that's more we have more certainty when we uh when we get out to uh to put it that way. Marge, how do you think about these things that Woody brings up?
3: Um, Like you, I I think about, you know, I'm placing all those bets, um, all those markets, all those positions, long and short. I'm not even predicting their outcome. I don't don't know what the outcome of those trades is going to be. So I'm not predicting anything about my trend-following system, but the way I see it is right now, today, I have a body of evidence and and reason to assume that placing those bets is a good thing to do, statistically speaking, and that if my backtest and all the observations that I've made in history acting in in the same way to price information produces an edge, and like I say, right now I have reason to assume that that edge is there, and therefore I have to place those bets in order to make money off it. This is how I see it. We may have a completely different conversation about this in, say, if we had 10 years of negative performance, every single year of those down with our trend-following trading systems, say down 15% every year for the next 10 years, will I then have reason to assume that placing those bets is the right thing to do? Well, probably not then with that current system set up. But you know, I haven't had those years, we're not in that environment. I'm actually having a good year this year. So and and the long term performance of my system is good, so seems to suggest that placing these bets in the way I place them is an okay thing to do. Um, it's a safe thing to do for me and my portfolio. So I continue doing it. Prediction, nah. I'm not predicting that the next bet is going to work and I'm not predicting that my system's going to work in twenty twenty. But the long term edge should be there right now.
2: And, you know, back to what he was saying, uh, you're kind of betting, you're kind of predicting that uh, your system, uh, behavioral biases that are incorporated into your approach are going to continue to work. Well, you know, unlike a trading idea, this is also uh, something that uh, the client is actively predicting as well. So I may keep my trading ideas secret, whether it's a global macro or fundamental or value or trend. But at least in that particular idea that, well, I'll let you off the hook on these other things, but not on this idea that you're predicting that what you have done in the past is going to continue. Well, that information is readily available to all clients. And recently, they've they've been mostly predicting that it's not going to continue. Uh, So they're fully aware of, and they're the ones who are really driving that particular bet as it it relates to our AUM and uh, lack of AUM. And uh, one of the things I've said over the years is that, you know, something like I, I have no idea what, what's going to happen, you know, in, this, in the future. Because uh, people will ask me, like I'll have friends who are interested in the gold market or uh, you know, the stock market and stuff. And I'll say, look, you know, I really can't tell you what's going to happen in the future, but I can tell you what the right position is. Right now, the position is, you know, whatever my system is been reflected in my system and in the rules uh, and the syst- these systems that I trade that have, have this historical edge. I'm trading different systems. Oh, my gosh. I have so little conviction on this particular trade. I even think it's sort of random that system one is long and system two is short. And, or if it's a big trend like a palladium, let's say, or the, the bond markets uh, when they sold off, uh, I had system one got out of some and system two stayed long. And so I have so little conviction on this particular trade that I even have two different systems that uh, can contradict themselves. These, this bond trade, this bean oil trade, this gold exit, you know the, where I'm gonna get out of these big trends, they're not even determined by the past things that have happened in those markets. My gold exit and my bond exits are the accumulation of all the trades. And so uh, looking back historically oh, where my exit is for the 10-year might uh, be a pretty bad place and a bad rule to use for the 10-year if you just looked at what the 10-year price action has been over the past 30 years. So I'm using uh, the commodities are impacting where I'm going to get out of my 10-year trade. So you know everything we do is uh, we don't even believe and we don't believe in prediction and and uh, how this trade, we have no idea how this trade is going to work out. Once again, if we follow this process multiple times, thousands of times, multiple such a small word compared to thousands of times in the future, like we have in the past, we think this edge might continue. Might. Edge. Might continue.
1: Yes. Yeah. And and again, not to, to split hairs, because uh, we may... It may have the same meaning uh, for for you, Woody, but but I I would say, again, not necessarily predicting anything, but in terms of relying, relying on human behavior not to change, relying on humans making the same stupid mistakes and decisions that we've done in the past hundreds, thousands of years. Yeah, now that I think we do rely on, and I don't think there's any way around that. Um, I don't think we predict much, but definitely heavily rely on 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 these things not changing. Um, but even if they did, I mean, let's not forget that trend following and and the way we trade is adaptive. So we're not relying on it happening exactly the same way as it did in the past. Uh, and as Jerry said, you know, using different models uh, and and using universal parameter sets. Um, uh, I think our our level of of prediction and and and, re, and and reliance on on certain specific outcomes is quite low, but but the fact that human behavior will continue to persist, I think we' we're, we're definitely banking on that.
2: And what kind of decisions are these? These are the most uh, mature and adult decisions possible. So even if we don't get it right, you know, the decision to diversify, massively diversify as much as possible in all the different markets we could possibly fit into the portfolio with longs and shorts using price taking small losses you know it's you know where does this fit into the responsibility uh, I think it's pretty darn good you know you failed by being as careful and as concerned about risk as you possibly could be and this is what adults do it doesn't matter that Putting all your money into an index that can suffer 50 to 90% drawdowns worked out best and beat the more responsible choices. I mean, so what? I mean, it's not like we're, we're doing anything crazy. We're doing the opposite of crazy. We're doing being the most conservative that, and the most humble about what we know and what we can think about in the future as you could possibly be. So um, this is the right...
3: Adults play by
2: the rules. Right. And they play by a process. <laughs> And you you raise your children in this particular way to say, look, here's the rules we're going to follow as a family, and uh, here's what we believe in, and you follow those rules, Uh, no lying, no cheating, no stealing, Uh, regardless. You may not end ahead. Uh, There'll be people passing you all the time. This is how we were all raised, and it's how we raise our children. And this is uh, responsible. And then if someone says, well, what if I don't? It doesn't matter. You know, these are non-negotiable and taking small losses and paying attention to price and diversifying like crazy, they're non-negotiable. It doesn't matter if it doesn't work in the future. It's the only way to proceed as a responsible, honest, God-fearing adult. I think maybe the other thing, Woody,
1: um, why I don't necessarily like the word prediction, I think prediction um, kind of suggests that you want to be right. Um, but actually, in our case, I don't think we care about being right. I think we care about winning and winning over the very long run, um, as I've said in the last few uh, episodes, I mean, who cares if we're down or behind at halftime, right? And halftime could be twenty years if our goal is to have a, you know, the best possible, um, you know, sum of wealth forty years from when we start, um, when at the time of retirement. I mean, you really shouldn't be concerned what uh, what the score is at halftime. So no, you know, given the fact, as as Jerry said, we're wrong most of the time when you look at individual trades. I don't think you can say trend followers predict much, if anything. Um, But it's a great uh, point, and I think it's something a lot of people struggle with, understanding how can you make money without making a prediction. I think that inherently is something people um, who are new to trend following struggles with might even keep them from investing in trend following because how could you possibly make money for 45, 50 years um, without making a single prediction? Because that's what they do on CNBC and Bloomberg, right? Every day, all the time.
2: And I just look at my portfolio daily and I just had this big smile on my face. It's just so different. I think, uh, you know, I look at the bean oil and the wheat and the palladium, ruble, and the Mexican peso, and I just think, God, oh, I'm so superior. You know, I just love that, and I just could not imagine, and I'm so thankful that my initial introduction into uh, investing and trading was with commodities and currencies <clears throat> and things that are not, and things other than stocks. Oh, I love my stocks, but, you know, I'm so happy that um, I'm so fortunate to be, and I just think, you know, this is... Um, I'm so, I just enjoy looking at all these different markets and having this diversification. I know it. I feel it. It's real. And it's, uh, you know, you need to, it's what I need to be able to sleep at night. Uh, and then Woody ends this uh, very nice email by saying, with brotherly love to you all. I mean, what an ending. What a great guy. <laughs> he's given us the business. He's trying to make us stand up for what we believe and explain ourselves. But he's a very nice gentleman. Absolutely.
1: And we're very fortunate uh, to have many of those uh, among our our listeners. Let's jump to um, the other question we had this week, which is from uh, William. Uh, William writes, question for all three of you guys. Do any of you put any weight in the COT reports that come out every week? For example, in gold, the commercials have... A very large short position historically. I am long gold and gold stocks due to my system being long. Would you guys just consider this more funda- funny men- mentals and ignore it uh, and just keep following price to the stop is hit or perhaps lighten up your positions if you are long? Now, let's start with you, Moritz. I uh, kind of have a feeling where this is going. <laughs> Let's see if your feelings right, but uh,
3: I guess my answer to that one's really quick. I don't look at the COT report. Um, I really never did. Uh, sometimes I snap it up, and there's you know things reported on Bloomberg on the news feed, and you know some number coming out, and uh, uh, that it's supposed to be bullish or bearish for the market, and it's kind of like yeah, okay, well, whatever. But no, I don't incorporate it. Uh, I use price only, and that is good enough for me. I believe that any information that is in any COT report is reflected and implied in the price. So you can say that, you know, yeah, I'm implicitly using all the information, including the CET, COT report information uh, in my trading, but specifically I do not use any, any information from those reports. But let
1: me pose a question to you, though, mm-hmm. because, of course, we... knew that that was going to be your answer. Um, But let me pose a question to you because there's a lot of debate and talk, certainly uh, in 2019, about alternative data, right? Mm. So do you think it could be used constructively? I mean, could you take this kind of data, uh, create rules that could be useful? I'm not necessarily saying that you would do it, but there is a difference between looking at a report and willy-nilly saying, oh, I'm going to lighten up because this chart shows me that whatever. Or there you could do, um, you know, analysis and come up with certain rules and put that as a component into your rule set.
3: Yeah, maybe. And, you know, there are many traders out there trading in different styles and, and using different types of data and inputs to form positions in the markets or build systems. I'm not saying that I have the only one um, that, that's working. Uh, far from it. I think there are many, many better people out there. Um, but, you know, I can only be me. And um, I like working the way that I work with price data. And I haven't really made any forays into the alternative data space. I don't want to say there is nothing there. But also like with the machine learning and AI stuff, I'm still sitting there and saying, show me the proof. All of us, done Chesapeake, there's proof in the pudding. Look at your numbers, look at your disclosure documents, and you can see it as a fact, black on white, what the returns of a trend following trading system have been applied for decades. We don't have that data for the machine learning AI or alternative data funds. So show me the proof, Tell me, show me how it's working, how you can systematize the approach and how much edge is in there. That we can have a conversation. Until then, it's in the stars.
2: Yeah, I doubt if you can improve upon a systematic approach. However, I'm not against, you know, I've laid out this many times how, you know, if you have this mega profit and it's gone up for two years and it's really volatile. And, you know, I think uh, if you want to take some profit off the table and you look at commitment of traders and it says, wow, there's a lot of longs, you know, whatever, you know it's probably okay to take some money off the table and have some fun and kind of have some contrary opinion uh, rules in place that you implement maybe once every year or two or three. And uh, so the opposite of a large sample size, it's just kind of like mixing it up and taking something off the table when the market gets crazy or volatile or too one-sided and you start getting phone calls from friends about their palladium position you know, maybe you can go look and find a a reason to get out of a little bit of it just uh, to enjoy life and have some fun and sleep at night. Sure. All right, let me just do a quick
1: review of where we stand in terms of some of these uh, CTA indices. The last update for the year, of course, it's not the end numbers for the year. And then when when I've done that, why don't we uh, do a little bit of a review of 2019, just things that might have stood out for us uh, individually nothing we've prepared i would say pretty improvised but just uh, since it is the last episode before we finish 2019 maybe um, it could be interesting for uh, for our listeners what uh, kind of what we remember at least uh, with short notice so to speak but anyways these numbers are as usual as of Thursday evening not much of course in terms of the holiday season, so some markets uh, had already been closed for a few days. I think Friday all markets were open again, and I think Friday was a good day in general for the CTA world, so these numbers are probably on the low side. Um, But anyways, um, nevertheless, the BTOP50 index was pretty flat for the month of December now, down 7 basis points and up 7.01% for the year. Uh, the SockGen CTA index down 32 basis points in December and up 659 for the year. SockGen trend index down 0.38% for the month of December, up 942 for the year, so having a great year. And the SockGen CTA, sorry, short-term traders index down 10 basis points and up 3.3% for the year. And finally, the uh, bridge alternatives index... Uh, down 1.39% for the month of December, up 808 But I have a good feeling that a lot of these numbers are in fact positive for December once we include Friday. So let me throw out just a fun fact that I was looking at uh, while we were recording coming through Twitter. Apparently, the last decade in terms of Individual kind of, I guess, investment slash stocks uh, that had done well. You know, the the overall winner by a huge margin in terms of performance over the last decade uh, is Bitcoin, and uh, number two is Ethereum. Once we move down into the stock world, the next one taking third place is Netflix, and then the fourth place probably surprised me uh, according to this is Domino's Pizza yummy but I guess that goes with Netflix doesn't it if you're watching a movie you want you want a pizza to go with it maybe <laughs> there's a link there exactly <laughs> correlation it's all about correlation right
2: well you know one of the things you were talking about before we went on um was some movements I don't I think maybe it was hogs or and then we talked about Bitcoin being a big mover and I know I bought Bitcoin and lost money in Bitcoin and I think I was surprised when Moritz said it's up, I don't know how many percent, because it started the year at 3,000 or 91. Some, yeah, 91. So, it's yeah. interesting that the, we're going to make a lot of money when, it, when the trends are big in stocks and in uh, palladium and uh, emissions and things like that. Okay, so we have a big trend, the CTAs make money, the trend followers make money, but our performance can look a lot different comparing to buy and hold. And then, of course, the uh, big, huge percentage moves in some of these markets mean nothing to us because we uh, size based upon inversely to the vol. So something that's moving around 2 or 3% a day, uh, typically, you know, I'm going to have a very small position. And something that barely moved in 2019 it might be my biggest winning trade because the vol was really low.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What, uh, what about you, Moritz, if we just kind of do the round? Uh, I mean... What what kind of stood out for you? I know we haven't kind of prepared anything formally, but I mean, is there anything when you think back of, on 2019 that kind of stood out for you?
3: Um, I think, you know, Bitcoin is this ultimate diversifier. I really came to like it in a portfolio context, just, you know, to mention it again uh, real quickly. But I've also observed in 2019 that I... You know, there's increased volume in the futures markets on the CME, so there's more trading activity. Maybe some people are embracing it as a real diversifier in their trading strategies, which I think it is. Of course, it is extremely violent. I remember us being in in New York City, and within, I don't know, 24 hours or something like this, uh, the market moved down 30%, up 30% or something like that. So it's very difficult to, uh, you know, stay in your positions and it, you may get you know tossed around but that being said the diversification of that instrument is great and i don't think there's any reason to not trade it in a systematic trend following portfolio um, we've mentioned the bonds already the bonds have been great this year they are uh, by the way the largest pnl contributor to my portfolio this year again it's the gift that keeps on giving. I know the last couple of months have been a bit more difficult with the bonds, but, um, you know, the first the first half of the year and then the early summer, oh, my goodness, I mean, there's been a lot of money in those markets. And and when you look, like, you know, when I step back from the computer and you look at all the markets, you, you may say, well, probably you've made most of the money in equities. But no, no, equities is number two, bonds is number one, you know. Of course, this has to do with sizing. Uh, our position sizes are larger in the bonds and um, the trend at the beginning of the year has just been uh, a lot stronger. Now the equity trend is stronger. But um, bonds again, that's what I look back on.
1: What about when you look at, just, and I don't know if you have this data available mm. uh, now, but when you look at individual markets, forget about sectors, individual markets, What were the? what were the big, Outliers, uh, performance-wise, positive, negative for you specifically? The long-dated bonds, I made a lot of money from those. So
3: it's the 30-year German, the 30-year US. Those have been really good for me. Okay. I, I made money on silver and gold. Gold, actually, quite significantly. And um, on the downside, let's see, what do I remember there? I, for one, didn't have a good year in the energies the energy markets have been really difficult for me to trade with a lot of chopping around didn't identify really any clear trends uh, in most of those markets and
1: um, so they haven't been that great heating oil for instance yeah interesting interesting
2: what about you jerry what 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 stood out well definitely staying away from energy is is a is a help i think whenever you have these massive uh, crazy moves like we saw at the end of uh last year It's just, to me, a signal of, okay, we have uh, six months to a year of nothing. So once we get, we ring out that crazy volatility and price movement, and uh, we're going to, we'll just uh, settle in here. And the vol is sort of low, and energies are rallying now quietly. People have been chopped up, and they've been kind of uh, beaten up by those markets. So now is the time to kind of get interested, I think. In general, energy is just something that people can't stay away from. The fundamental crowd wants to get lo- long at the lows and it's a big component of the economies. And so I think, um, but it's, it's been fun trading some of the individual equities. Uh, had a huge move in uh, Target one day and then huge loss in Dollar Tree one day. Short Tesla once. This year, and then uh, f- a few weeks later, long Tesla. <laughs> so, no opinion, uh, just following the trends, buying the breakouts. And it's just kind of funny to, in the context of how we look at the markets, then, especially as it relates to equities, there's lots of stuff written about why, and when, and where, and what's going to occur. And we just sit back and kind of chuckle a little, and then, uh, well, when it goes lower, and hits my exit, I'll get out. But the rest of the world is like, what? What are you doing? Why are you saying that? And so, just kind of funny uh, thinking about it in those terms. But, uh, you know, it's trading a lot of uh, interesting equities, you know, fun names that uh, companies that are doing crazy stuff, Spotify, or Beyond Meat, Canopy Growth, the marijuana stocks. It's fun, and it's different, and uh, in the same way that I like and enjoy one of the few people on the planet, relatively speaking, to belong to bean oil and platinum and wheat and and palladium, sorry, and uh, maybe getting along cattle soon. You know, it's fun trading uh, some of these different stocks as well. The world is your oyster. You can pick whichever ones you want. You know, we're compelled to trade the currencies or the commodities. You know, we all trade the same ones, blah, blah, blah. But get out there and use some some of your creativity and choose the 20 or 30 stocks that you're going to trade and try to find as much diversification as you possibly can. It's so much fun. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, one of the
1: things that did stand out was just the uh, unusual run of positive monthly returns that our industry and that we as a firm delivered uh, this year. I mean, on our side, we had seven monthly positive returns in a row that doesn't happen very often in uh, in the trend following world. So that was uh, a little bit uh, unusual. I certainly also remember the the bond sell off not least from that weekly episode we did that week. I think it was just uh, so uh, so raw and and so honest uh in terms of how we discussed the the pain that had been inflicted for a while, but also the the optimism about how this will just go down as, as um, another week uh, when we look back at it. And I, I think uh, that was a great point that Moritz uh, made earlier today um, and reminded us that that's exactly how we look at that week today. Three months later, it was just another week. So uh, I think that's a great lesson to be reminded of once in a while, I also think about some of the crazy moves we've seen in the markets, uh, like the lean hawks in 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 March and April. I think one of the months where it was up seventy five percent. I mean, we were on the wrong side of that trade. Unfortunately, it didn't cost a lot of money—maybe a percent and a half or so. So, not a big thing. Um, would have been great to be on the right side of it, but but again, it just uh, just shows you, you know, that there is. There's definitely a lot of opportunity out there, uh, and if you can embrace a uh, a process, if you can learn to love it, despite all its shortcomings, you know, as 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 you say, Jerry, that you know, the world is our oyster, and and we can, um, you know, we we should look at the future as being very bright. Uh, frankly, when it comes to the the opportunity set we have ahead of us, despite the fact that you know, I can't ignore that it has been a decade where a lot of people will say that trend followers struggled to deliver. So, again, I don't look at it in, in in those terms necessarily because I think all strategies go through decades where they have lower than normal performance. We we know that that's what happened to equities from 2000 to 2010. Maybe it happened to us from 2010 to 2020, it didn't. It doesn't mean that money were not made. I mean, I think uh, you know the three of us can be proud looking our look, looking uh, in, in the eyes of our investors of what we delivered in the past decade. But that's just the way the investment world works, and that's why you need to be diversified. Um, so those are the things that I think back on uh, in terms of specific uh, markets that uh, stood out for us. I mean. The German Bund was, the 10-year German Bund was the market that at the moment with a couple of days left of the year is still uh, slightly ahead. But and, and of course, fixed income in general did fine, uh, did really well. Um, but even, I mean, gold was a pretty good uh, market for us. The euro was a pretty good market. So lots of opportunities when you trade a diversified portfolio.
2: At the time when I we talked about I'm so excited to add uh, Bitcoin. And, being, and as the world changes and as things go crazy and we see things that have never happened again, it's, we're going to get a few Bitcoins, but we're going to get a lot of stuff in stocks. It's going to be a lot of stuff that you can only manifest it if you trade single names. So it's very important for CTAs to stay on that and to always be offering more and the latest and the greatest and the new fundamental that we can ride as far as trends go. If nothing happens, we take a small loss. But with Bitcoin, I was especially excited to trade that. You know, how are you going to trade it? What's it going to do? How are you going to put it in your portfolio? And it's just an afterthought. There's liquidity. I know when it opens. I know when it closes. I know the tick value. I'm going to trade it, just like I trade everything else. And then at the time, I remember tweeting something along the lines of, What a perfect market. Because, like, no one understands it really, no one knows what it's going to do. And so you're not even tempted to use anything other than trend. And so, oh well, unlike some of the first times I've traded markets over the years, the Italian bonds or natural gas, there were instant huge profits for me. The very first time I traded those markets, uh, Bitcoin, ah, it was a loss, but I loved it still. And uh, I still, you know, one of these days, it's gonna be the calling card for some year where how did you make money? Um, Just like in 19, it was the bonds and one of these years it might be crypto, who knows? Absolutely. Any other things you want to bring up? I've got a final
1: afterthought, but any other things you want to bring up?
2: I found another tweet I could just mention. I uh, thought it was pretty interesting. It's kind of short. This was uh, written by a stock guy, and he goes, what investment factors work for stocks? And he says, momentum is perhaps the most persistent of all factors occurring across all investment assets. But momentum stocks share 20% of excess returns from mid-08 to 09. And he ends by saying, when this approach fails, it really fails. So then he goes on in the article and says, if momentum is not more dangerous and is widely known, why does it generate extra profits? And I think he answered his question earlier by saying, when, it, when this approach fails, it really fails. And I think we need to love our losses and uh, embrace those drawdowns and embrace the characteristics that the systems, the profitable systems uh, exhibit, which is... Uh, lots of volatility with big profitable trades. And are you gonna to be tough enough to hang in there, follow your systems and not get out and not be tempted to uh, be afraid of the results that you're gonna get by purely following these systems? Absolutely. With those uh, words, I think that's it for
1: for this week, for this month, and for this year, um, and even decade, so to speak, in terms of the Systematic Investor Series. Next time you hear from us, it'll be 2020. 2019 was a good year. I think we managed to put out a new episode each week. We held our first live event in New York, and uh, we were honored uh, to be joined by a lot of new listeners during 2019. So I want to express our deep gratitude to all of you who tune in every week, who take time to send us your questions, who likes and share our social media posts, and who offer us ideas and advice on how we can continue to expand this podcast series so we can serve more investors in the future. Um, for us, it's all about sharing without expecting anything in return. But rest assured that all of your kind messages, your emails, your ratings, your review, uh, not only get read, but also are greatly appreciated by the three of us. So from Jerry, Moritz and me, thank you so much again for spending part of your day with us. We are grateful for your support and we can't wait to be back with you in 2020. And in the meantime, we wish all of you a happy new year.